Good evening, everyone. I'm broadcasting live February something. February 9th, 2016. And tonight's quote is about the senses. Now this is a meditation quote. Bhaitabang etasa sukasati wadami. This happiness is to be feared, I say. Well, the quote goes that there are five, five kama guna. Kama means sensuality, guna means. Well, the strands is interesting. I don't think it means strands. Groups is a common translation. No? Well, maybe it's not groups because you see here. Oh, it can mean a cord. Hmm? Yeah. Five binds, maybe then, right? But Kamaguna is it just means sensual pleasures. But let's suppose that it means strands, that it means things that you're bound to, that we, that we uh, wrap ourselves up in, or we get wrapped up in, we get tied up in, and we get bound by, and we're bound to, we're slaves to, So there are those material shapes that we see with the eye, pleasant, liked, enticing, connected with sensual pleasures, alluring. Sounds cognizable by the ear, smells cognizable. So sounds that you hear with the ear, smells you smell with the nose, tastes with the tongue, touches with the body, all agreeable, pleasant, liked, enticing, connected with sensual pleasures. Itha kanta ma mana papiya rupa kamu pasamita rajaniya 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 is an interesting word. Okay, Raja means enticing. Rajaniya. Huh. Rajaniya actually does come from Raja. No. Ra Raja? Strange. Not Raja. Raja. Rajas. Ita manaba, delightful. So it's it starts off quite nice actually. It starts off quite favorable for uh, towards sensuality. That changes at the end of the quote. But this is an important part of Buddhism, important part of the Buddha's teaching that you see throughout. He recognizes, the Buddha recognizes the kama um, nisangsa, the, the benefits, the good, the good in sensual pleasure. Not exactly the good, because you have to be careful. Well, that's really what anisangsa means, the... Uh, benefit or the profit kind of you know, the, the, the benefit really it's a, it's acknowledging the fact that pleasure is pleasurable pleasure is desirable it's itamanapa it's it's something that is um, desired 
in something that is that pleases the mind but uh, well anyway so the, the clearly this is a part of the truth the truth is these things are pleasurable when you see things that you like that's pleasurable when you hear things there are certain sounds that are pleasurable. There's no question. This is part of the truth. But if that were and if that were all of the truth, then that'd be fine. But it's missing a key component: is the the, the undeniable fact that this pleasure doesn't lead to happiness, or put simply, it doesn't even lead to more pleasure. So there's a problem, the problem that you can't always get what you want. And I guess more, more to the point that uh, wanting things makes not getting things more difficult. So the Buddha recognized three things in regards to sensuality. First, the anisangsa, the benefit. And uh, the second, the danger. Kamadinoa, the negative aspect, the problem, really, the problem with sensuality. And thirdly, Kama, I think it's Nisarana, you know, the, the, the leaving behind, or the getting out of, the freeing oneself from the trap of Kama, of sensuality. So you wouldn't need the third one. There wouldn't be a pro there wouldn't be any need to do anything to fix the problem if there weren't uh, a problem with sensuality, but there is. And it kind of puts you in a, I guess you could say, a catch-22 sort of situation. I don't know if that's even a proper usage of that, but you, you either do without sensuality, you deny yourself sensuality, and suffer as a result, or you seek out sensuality and suffer as a result. So it's like the only way to be free from the problem with the pleasure is to give up the pleasure entirely. And that kind of thinking it sounds reasonable. And it's probably those, it, I think it is those sorts of lines of reasoning that keep people tied to sensuality intellectually anyway. I mean, there's more... Um, there's more to do more viscerally in terms of just being addicted. But intellectually, we think, well, you know, I don't even want to give these things up because it's the best I can do, right? The only alternative is to give them up entirely. Well, at least I get them sometimes. And so we have this... I guess you could say... The, um, sh short-sightedness I don't know I mean if this were all there was if it's true that that was the best you could do and a measure of one's happiness was indeed how much pleasure one got then absolutely that would be the best way to go and so that's how people um, that's how general Indian society in the time of the Buddha looked at this sort of thing. I mean, it was a big, it, it's, it's always been sort of a theme running in Hinduism. Um, central pleasures, or not necessarily, but bliss and happiness is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, is the, the height and so it's just a matter of finding the most refined sort of form of bliss. Now, spiritual, spiritual, spirituality in India, and I guess you could say spiritual Hinduism, it does tend to be fairly steeped in sensual pleasure. But uh, at its highest, it it denounces sensual pleasure, but it denounces it in favor of meditative pleasures, like the the bliss of meditation. And Buddhism falls into that as well. There's a lot of Buddhist teachers who emphasize the bliss aspect of meditation. And 
Uh, I mean, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, with 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 that pleasure. Uh, in, in fact, there's nothing wrong with pleasure in general, just as there's nothing wrong with pain either. But the danger doesn't come with the pleasure, right? As we all know, the danger comes, and this is the catch, is that it comes from liking it. So uh, the only way to be free from the suffering that comes with the things you want is to stop wanting them entirely, and then he's like, "Well, well, what good is it?" But this kind of, you know, so this kind of thinking actually points out the whole um, absurdity of the whole system, or the at least the the inconsistency or the unsustainability that it just doesn't work as a system. And if it was all there was, it's actually quite um, depressing, I think. You know, you meet people who have pleasant lives and they're able to live with a lot of pleasure throughout their lives. They're able to put aside their sufferings and in general have a positive outlook on life. There are other people who are not able to do that. And there's some sense that it's, the scientists see that it's it's a pre precondition, no, it's a, a predilection or a... a so some they would say genetic, but it's something that um, we're born with. Different people have different types of brains. Some people's brains are more inclined towards pleasure. So good for them, right? Um, and but when you see these people, or or even if you just you usually don't think about the brain aspect. You see people who are seem to be doing quite well, and it really. Um, supports this idea that if only right if only I could get to that point if only I could be like them often we look at people and they seem so happy and we think wow you know they're so happy we feel generally bad about ourselves because we're not that happy uh, and then and then it turns out that it deep down inside they're actually suffering quite a bit that that's also the case but no, the danger is, I mean, and the real horror of it, uh, the Buddha actually uses very strong language. He says, it should not be pursued, developed, or emphasized. It is a happiness to be feared, I say. Bhaita, I think is the word, right? Bait, no, bhaita bang. Right? Bhaita bang etasa sukasa. There should be fear of this suffering, of this happiness. There should be fear of this sukha. It's because of the results of pursuing it. And there's so many ways of explaining that. I mean, the results of Consuming. Let's look at the results of consumerism, how it destroys the earth. The results of comp competition, because eventually it does become a competition. The more you want, once your addictions become diverse enough, you begin to encroach and infringe, encroach upon the desires of others. And that's how wars are started. Believe me, all these religious wars or whatever, they're, all, they're not religious or ideological. It's all greed mostly to sell money, the weapons in weapons industrial complex or whatever, to win elections, etc., etc. I mean, there's so much insanity in surrounding. I mean, meaning that uh, so much horror that comes from, from greed because of competition and uh, how it intoxicates the mind uh, you can't see straight. You can't think straight. Sorry, when you when you're intoxicated, or when you when you want something, this is what causes us to step all over 
other people. This is what causes us to go beyond competition and into outright manipulation and um, oppression, etc., etc. So how most political systems wind up, the people on top end up crushing the people on bottom to get what they want. And once they've got what they want, to get more than, you know, to get, to keep up with their wants, to keep up with their ever-increasing wants. It's, it's actually obscene. Um, and, and most simply, I mean, these are all good examples of, of the results of, of pursuing these. Um, but the, mo the most simple and really the core for, for Buddhism is the, the idea that, it's ever, that the, the desires are ever increasing and the pleasure is ever decreasing. And so anytime, and this is, this is inherent in the system, so anytime you uh, like a pleasure, pleasure comes and you like it, you've entered into a system of diminishing returns that inevitably leads you to uh, leads you to dissatisfaction because it doesn't it, it doesn't sustain itself pleasure doesn't bring more pleasure now many people are on the upswing and they can live their lives quite well but I think we have to we have we have to examine. I mean, this is actually an important point. Looking at people who are happy all the time, because it throws a monkey wrench in the Buddhist philosophy. It seems to, but there's two points that have to be that can't be ignored. One is that could come to an end at any time. You know, um, I mean, no. I guess at the least a person can change. There's no sense that that is. A permanent thing. In fact, the brain can even change. Um, but no, more that it doesn't work as a theory. It just makes you lucky. Example. So, if we if we ignore the whole idea that a person can change, if we say, well, someone is lucky, even before we get to the idea that they, they may not always be able to find the pleasure. No. I mean, they could get into a situation, and in fact, they will, because they're cultivating. And I mean, it ends up being, uh, I mean, like a game of Frogger kind of, where you're always jumping from one pleasure to the next, and and ignoring the fact that it's sinking underneath you, and that one day you're going to get stuck on a sinking piece of ice. You ever played Frogger? Um, but even still, if we ask how do we end suffering, if we look at a general sense of how to end suffering, it can't be by ensuring that everyone gets pleasure, because it's not going to happen. There's, there's, you can't ensure this. The world accidents happen, if nothing else. You know, um, acts of nature, natural disasters. How do you cope with Haiti or... Uh, what was the, the tsunamis in Japan and the earlier one in all over Southeast Asia? How do you how do you deal with sickness, old age, death? It's not a system that works. It's not an answer to the problems of life to just keep getting more and more and more. And, and so it actually relates to the other problems, is that even someone who's always happy, they're destroying the earth. You know, they're always, this is what consumerists, consumers, consumers today are doing. We're, we're setting ourselves up for uh, trouble. And what we've just done is look to the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years and said, okay, well, I can sustain it that long and then I'll die and that's it. And usually I'll go to heaven according to my religion, because I believe in God, etc., etc. Or that's it. If you don't believe in an afterlife, uh, and, and so we 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 abuse our situation to the best of our ability, squeeze as much life out of it as we can, and 
in the end, we leave not, we leave with nothing except our desires. But we figure, well, that's a, I've lived a good life, right? And so what we've seen is a degradation of the earth as a result. And and uh, surprise, surprise, we keep coming back, and it keeps getting worse and worse, and we're digging ourselves deeper and deeper into a pit. And you know, the system breaks eventually, even if you are able to stay on the upswing. I mean, for many people, it's already broken. People who were greedy in their past lives are then the poor people in their next lives, the people without in the next lives. If they're manipulative, if they're, com uh, if they're, um, combative, then they can be born in hell. You, you, know, you go to a bad place out of greed. It can lead you to terrible things. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about if we if we incorporate if we talk start talking about Buddhist ideas of karma and and rebirths. Because obviously, desire is not going to. It's an important point: is that desire is not going to lead you to a good rebirth. How do we know this without you know, basing it on faith? You can see it in this life. A person who engages in sensual addiction becomes progressively more and coarser and coarser in their desires in order to try and um, evoke the same feeling because you need more, but not only more, you need coarser desires. You need something more sharp, more harsh, more animalistic, you might say, right? I think that's a good word to use because if you look at animals, in some ways they're an extension of many of our, our paths. And so we might, this is an easy way to see how you were born as a dog or a cat. Or worse, their desires are so coarse and so base. I'm going to get in trouble because I'm insulting cats. But So some, some thoughts on uh, sensuality. Obviously this is what we look at in meditation. And the most important point that you could say about it is that it's this, none of this is to be taken uh, on faith or to influence you in your beliefs. If anything, it's to challenge you. Because it, it, a lot of this for many people doesn't feel comfortable or... or um, pleasant to hear, right? It's not something we want to hear. You're not supposed to. It's not supposed to. You're not supposed to swallow the bitter pill and say, "Okay, well, he's probably right and I'm probably wrong." That's not how Buddhism works. This is to challenge you. These are bold claims. I think. I mean, the, the claim that the Buddha makes is certainly bold. That that sensual pleasure is to be feared. You can challenge him on that. You're supposed to challenge that. You're supposed to approach that. Uh, from a, a perfectly neutral point of view and test it. Look at the evidence, not your logic or reasoning, but actually look and observe how pleasure works. And that's what meditation is about, observing. So when you want something, saying to yourself, wanting, wanting. When you feel pleased, saying to yourself, happy, happy, or pleased, please. When you like, liking. When you want, wanting. And look at the results as well. When you when you feel upset because you don't get, when you feel stressed because you have to strive for, you, know, you have to work for, look at that as well. Eventually, you'll see the truth. It's not intellectual. You'll just see it. It's as though it's right in front of you. You'll say, "Wow, this is really hurting me," and you'll just let it go. It won't even be a logical. This is hurting me. Therefore, I should let it go. It'll just be seeing the useless, see, seeing what's right there, what we can't see how useless it is, how harmful it is, showing ourselves in a sense, because intellectually we often know that our addictions are harmful. Meditation shows us that. So we, sh we show ourselves that. See, see, I told you, the brain knew. You're showing your mind, showing your heart. So, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Do we have, oh, we got some people on the Hangout. I'd like to I'd like to express my appreciation for our two meditators. They're working very hard here, doing intensive practice, many hours a day. Uh, but that's so. Uh, everyone, sad who to them. But you can go continue with your practice.
So who do we have here? Bobby, Dar, Larry, Simon. Nice questions. And you really should have headphones if you come in the hangout, because as you can see, you're echoing. I don't have headphones. I'm a hypocrite, but. Um, better if you have headphones, or else if your mic is My mic is probably okay because it's far away from the speakers. Test, test, or maybe it wasn't. Test, test. Yeah, it's not my mic. Does anyone have questions this evening? I just came by to say hi. Hey, I, uh, I've got a, I guess, a question comment, Monte. Um, I, I guess the predicament with, you know, you, you're speaking of uh, pleasures and people in the, in the upswing. Um, it, it, they're, they're unconscious of their predicament. They're unaware. You know, they're they're trapped in their own mm-hmm. ignorance, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's gosh, that just is sad. You know, it's a where is where is they're out. They just have to be fortunate enough to come across someone or some circumstance or or you know some learning something to hear or see to to kind of so to speak wake up otherwise they're just they're just swimming in their ignorance yeah it's scary that samsara i mean we're a part of samsara we're we're a whole sea of of ignorance and <laughs> meaninglessness i mean it's not really a problem you can just stay in samsara it's just it turns out to be meaningless mm-hmm. you can't you can't hold a view that samsara is somehow good uh, i mean you can people do um, but it's not tenable there's lots of ways of poking holes in that argument and that's what leads Buddhists to say, well, leaving samsara actually in the end is preferable. It's a, but it's a long path. Um, as you say, you have to come across, but you have to go. You have to go logically step by step. You can't say, you know, you're you're wallowing in a sea of delusion. You can't say that samsara is meaningless. I mean, here I go saying these things, but I want to qualify. I have to qualify it by saying. All of that is impossible to see unless you've seen these first things. And if you see these first things, by first things I mean you see how your desires are causing your suffering. You, you see how you're causing, you say, I'm suffering, why am I suffering? And you look and you see why you're suffering. Once you start to see why you're suffering, the rest is like, why does B follow A? I mean, why does 2 follow 1? It's a natural progression. You get to Nibbana without any doubt, without any need to, without any concern, is this the right path? Is it right to attain Nirvana? So uh, I think um, people are often turned off by the idea of having to give up all sensuality, having to leave samsara behind, never to be reborn, never to see the things that they love. You know, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's um, looking at things that you don't understand, that you can't understand. It's not possible. You can't think enough and you'll understand. You really have to go step by step or you'll never appreciate. It's impossible to appreciate nirvana. Impossible to appreciate nirvana until you've gone the steps and seen how it's not It's not a question of... You know, it's, not, it's not up for debate. You can't argue based on experience against leaving samsara. It just has to come step by step, which is why it's so important to get people to meditate. Not to talk too much about this kind of theory, but to get them to meditate. And once they're meditating, you can talk about this kind of theory, challenge them, and have them see how it, it how they react. Oh, you want me to give up my pleasure? You, ah, you see, you have an attachment. You have stress. If I say you, if I say stop attaining pleasure, stop looking for pleasure, that that injunction is stressful. 
Now, why is that? You know, this kind of thing. If you're really, you know, if it's really wholly good, then just stop doing it. Stop, stop attaining it. Stop going for it. Right? Stop striving for it. If you do, you'll feel stress. You'll feel, you'll feel terrible, really. Withdrawal. Hmm? That's the state we live in. Is we're in constant. It's actually, it's fearsome in that way as well. It's fearsome because you're you're being chased by withdrawal, and you have to always outrun these demons of desire. If you ever fall behind, they start to bite your heels. That's why it's fearsome. Okay, no questions? Who is this, Dar? Is that Dar from Second Life? Who is Dar? Hi. Um, what's the point of all of this? Like, you know, the oh, greed, the anger, the jealousy, the whatever, the lust. What's the point of it all? You're all just going to end up dead. So, like, why do we have so much, like, mm -hmm. attachment to these things, I guess? bad habits. We cultivate them habitually. I mean, think of how you were when you were a kid. We may have come into the world with some emotions, greed particularly. Kids, I think, have well, greed and anger and delusion. But um, putting that aside, think of how your parents treated you. Think of how your friends treated you. Think of what neuroses and, you know, how, how we, we developed as kids. Yeah, we... Uh, we develop bad habits. I mean, I guess you can't totally separate it from what came before because the reason we develop them is out of ignorance and out of bad habits already. Our, our ego, so self-esteem, this is how kids get low self-esteem when they're bullied, um, when, when they're assaulted, you know, when these sorts of things happen. But, but just about everything. When we're picked on, when we're shunned socially, when we are teased. Oh. Um, so they, they magnify, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Why are we so steeped in these things is habits. We built them up. We came into, into this world with them. We came into this birth with them. But uh, we developed them. And they go up and down, right? So sometimes we're born with very little greed or anger or delusion. Sometimes we're born with a lot and it goes out and we cultivate whatever during this life, good or bad. And so it's like an ocean rolling around. There's no point to it. There's no meaning to it. There's no, there's no samsara. Or the, the universe is, has no meaning, has no purpose. That idea that it has a purpose is solely based, I would say, solely based on our or primarily anyway, I don't know solely, but primarily based on our misguided belief that there is a creator God. That there is someone up there with a plan, because when we build things, there's a reason for building them, right? They have a purpose. Even if it's just a sand castle to look nice. That's actually, Hinduism is kind of like that. I think Krishna built, Krishna, or whatever, I don't know, actually, God created the world just in play, for fun, kind of. I'm probably totally butchering the Hindu religion, but it's, there, there's those elements of just doing it for fun. Um, but even that is a purpose, and, and, and it comes from God, from the idea that there's a creator. Now that's erroneous, fallacious. There's no evidence. There's no, um, there's no reason to think that. Uh, so, uh, so pragmatically speaking, or, or empirically speaking, there's no obvious reason for the rhyme or reason for the universe. And therefore, for us, for life, you know, what's the purpose of life? It's a, it's the wrong question. The better question is, how do I be happy? I think, because it's about us. You know, it's, it speaks to. It speaks to us, you know, to what we want. We want to be happy. Rather than speaking to some intellectual concept that ends up being meaningless. Was it... Uh, I, I, um, I keep coming back to... the. 
you know the 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 I want to be happy. It seems like it's maybe contradictory to I want to or I should want to participate with life and nature in a good, wholesome, and and in a skillful way, which would, if done, that that promotes happiness, but not just for myself, but for more for others. It, I I just ha I I have a problem sorting through through that. Why is um, like you don't think that that's that leads to happiness? Well, it's it, it's almost like is is it is it it's it's much more than just an individual thing. I see. We're we're all part of something much bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, both in the short term and in the long term, mm -hmm. eternal. Um, it, you know, to the, I'm not sure that I even understand eternal, but but it's you know it's just that it's it's got seems like there's got to be a participatory approach to everything to make it meaningful. <laughs> I, and I may just be trying to attach meaning to something that can't can't have meaning attached to it. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what your, what the thrust of of the, you say it's the trouble that you're having, but um, I mean, empirically, there's a difference between the happiness that comes from doing good things with a good heart, or even just having a good heart, and the happiness that comes from wanting. Mm -hmm. It's empirically different. Okay. One is unadulterated. That's the, the idea. Altruis altruism is. I've talked about altruism, but the kind of concept of altruism is actually quite selfish or self-centered because it you do it because it makes you happy. Doesn't have to be actually. This is true. I mean, the problem with altruism is when you feel like you should do it. You feel an obligation to do it, and you feel kind of bad because you lost something. I give you something, but well, I really wanted it, so it makes me feel bad inside. It's. Um, I mean, that's still considered to be a good thing because you're training in it, and eventually it becomes more comfortable, and you start to change your greed. You start to lose your greed. You see the, and you see the suffering inherent in greed. But, uh, but I mean, that's really the point, is that the, 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 the true benefit of, of altruism is that it reduces your greed. It reduces your selfishness, it reduces your ego, it reduces your anger, it reduces your defilements, right? When you're patient with someone, when you could just lash out and say, why are you taking so long? Why are you so, why don't you understand this? Why don't you, whatever. Um, when you're patient instead, it reduces your, your anger. Uh, when you want something and instead you be patient with it, but it, it helps to reduce your, your greed. And so the outcome is, is peace. The outcome is more uh, contentment, which is a much more lasting and stable and unadulterated happiness. And it sounds so dull, really, that when you give up all pleasures, you're without, right? But that's not really how it is at all. You're so happy. You feel free. It's like you've got this big weight lifted off your shoulders. Where I don't care what happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have. I'm not bothered by it one bit. So people say, "What is this?" I was like, "Okay." <laughs> that's what it's like. It's so free. You know, that's the, that's the point. When you when you have when you have attachment, you're you're uh, you're vulnerable to outcome. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, there's lots. I mean, it's good to talk about these things because these are hard concepts, of course, because we're so steeped in in desire. 
these are hard concepts to, to, to talk about and it's important because logically we're in we're 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 deluding ourselves. If you look at it intellectually, it helps you to see that you know, we're really deluding ourselves and that does help you push to practice. It helps you sort of uh, gain confidence in what you're doing and the importance of of mental clarity, of, of mental cleansing, cl cleaning the mind like we clean the body. Right? Should be a daily thing. Here's my question. We all know we're gonna die one day, so like that's what I'm asking. Like, why be greedy? Why be you know lusty? Why be jealous? Mm -hmm. We all know we're gonna die one day, but yet we still can't like help ourselves. I guess I don't know. You're, you're preaching to the choir. Why? <laughs> I mean, if you want an answer, my guess why? I mean, it's it's ignorance, delusion. We are not conscious enough to understand what you're saying. You know, I mean, intellectually, it's it's great, but we're not conscious. We're not awake enough. That's really it. We're half asleep. Meditation, you feel more awake, more alert, more able to see what you kind of know intellectually anyway, but you're too asleep to really um, put it into effect. You know, people who are angry will feel guilty after they lash out. People who are greedy will feel guilty after they indulge. People who are arrogant, conceited, will, I think, often feel guilty. Anyway, maybe not all the time, but we, we do have that. Uh, and that's kind of a sign that we're kind of awake. If you don't have guilt at all, I suppose you could say you're totally asleep. That's the most dangerous. But if you feel bad about it, then that's better because at least you're kind of conscious that you're on a bad path. Uh, but we're, we're just not awake enough to stop it, to really get it, to really see clearly. So we've got this sort of cerebral thing going on where we know it's wrong, but our heart, the core of who we are, is on autopilot. You know, getting, getting, getting. It's kind of scary. That's the whole thrust of the quote tonight. It is kind of scary. How animalistic we can become. We lash out when we're angry. We don't even have time to think about whether we should or shouldn't. So I say habit and uh, ignorance, or, or this veil of delusion that keeps us as though we were asleep. A negligent person or a heedless person is as though already dead. Well, and, and mention was made of, you know, we, we, we're going to die. You know, we, we basically everyone knows, you know, we, we see it in everyday life. Everyone's going to die. And the... Um, the the healthy contemplation of death, which is really easy to avoid, and mm. and really uncomfortable, but it, it it what little bit I've tried to do does seem to ha go a long way. Sure. Yeah, I mean those kind of meditations certainly bring conviction because they start to change your views. You say, right, right. You change your priorities, you know. Mm -hmm. And and consideration of death is is one thing that the Western culture is not good at. Mm. Among many things, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, I mean, a very good point. Is that we have spiritually we haven't, I think, evolved very well in that regard. There are other, well, I mean, Buddhism played a big part in that, for sure, in, in Asia. Um, Hinduism, I guess, as well, does talk about death. But, uh, yeah. Well, and, and so many of us have grown up in the uh, in a in Christian or quasi-Christian tradition, which goes a long way towards allowing one to avoid such contemplations, mm -hmm. I think. Right. Although I suppose you could probably argue that cultural, cultural um, Christian society is probably more, more conscious. I mean, I, I, I guess I would 
speculate that uh, part of our inability to deal with these kind of deep spiritual questions is not having a deep spirituality in the West. Um, you know, the, the, America was sort of founded fairly secularly, right? It was, if you compare to Europe, everyone was running away from organized anything, including religion. So when people talk about Canadian culture, I just kind of laugh. What do you mean? We don't have any culture. <laughs> we do. It's kind of quaint. I mean, we have Tim Hortons. That's our culture. <laughs> you guys have McDonald's. I mean, that's culture. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not so. It, it just may be our. But anyway, kind of off track. The point being that it's a good point that um, these kind of meditations are things that should come to the West, along with the rest of Buddhism. Contemplation of death is something. Uh, charity, I suppose. Um, I don't know how common that is in the West. And actually, see, the funny thing is, people, always, Buddhists always complain about this, and they have been for a long, long time, and it may have been worse before. And they would say, you know, Buddhism's not going to survive in the West because people aren't charitable enough. They aren't, they aren't kind enough. People were saying, you know, if you want to start a monastery here, you want to start a meditation center, you have to charge for it. You can't be a monk, certainly. But moreover, you have to, you know, you have to think in terms of capitalist concepts. Uh, and so this is, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm always hesitant to bring up charity because, of course, it, it is, you know, I, I don't, we do rely on it. And so it sounds like I'm kind of somehow obsessed or concerned with this, but not really. Not really, not at all. Um, and this is this is something that you hear Buddhists talk about a lot, and in the West it is a common criticism, and it's kind of absurd to me. It's not really true. I don't. I, there isn't certainly the same religious fervor that you find in Buddhist societies, but people are so yeah, it's so awesome. I mean, look at this community. Look what we've done, right? Uh, small. We're not. We're not huge, and we're not. It's not like we have resources to just to, to burn or anything. But um, the fact that we can do that, we can do so much for free on a small scale, but can do is uh, and and with no problem. With with it's um, and moreover, what I was thinking is how it. Uh, cultivates that sort of, I don't guess I don't want to, I'm shy away from the word fervor, but kind of fervor in the sense of confidence and, 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 and you know, just as with the awareness of death, the awareness of charity as a religious practice, as, as, as a part of your practice as a Buddhist, for example. Um, I mean, it just comes... So, when um, when people often say, I mean, it's the whole field of dreams, if you build it, they will come, kind of, you have to, you, you can't expect people to be religious in, before you uh, you teach them, or before you, you, you introduce them to the religion. Now, this, this is totally off track from what you were talking about, death, but... Um, Probably you could make an argument that uh, it's it's merely from a lack of being in touch with enlightened beings. It's not an east versus west thing. In my mind, a lot of it isn't east versus versus west. It's just Buddhism versus no Buddhism. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or or even if you want to be a little bit more uh, charitable, uh, Buddhist type religions or spiritual deeply spiritual religions versus not deeply spiritual religions. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't personally find theistic, monotheistic religions to be all that spiritually um, fulfilling. Now, I, I, I'm, obviously they find them to be fulfilling, but I just mean to say it's kind of simple. You know, you believe in God, you go to heaven. For many people that's their religion, um, or or at, at at best you do a bunch of meaningless rituals, 
I mean, meaningless in the sense of, to us, meaningless, but to God, meaningful. We do them because God wants us to do them. That's what the priest tells us, right? That kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's fairly simplistic. So, you know, where's the, where's the spirituality in that? Where's the contemplation of death? You know, what is death to, uh, say, a Christian? Well, death is the moment where my faith is transformed into a heavenly uh, afterlife eternal afterlife. I mean, it's a very simplistic way of looking at death. It totally avoids the, the fact that when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. And you might go to hell. You know, even if you've been a good Christian, and even if that were the way, at the last moment you might suddenly get scared and think and, and forget about God. And if you forget about God in that last moment, surprise, surprise, he can't save you. Not that that actually does lead to heaven, but uh, if your mind is in a bad place when you die, I mean, it's just if you compare it to the Buddhist concept of death and how we actually look at death and and dealing with death and becoming it, the importance of becoming comfortable with death. It's a whole other type of of religion. So the the world is you know, we often are a big doom and gloom and especially doom and gloom about modern society, but the world is clearly, clearly contains good and bad elements to it, and we should never, we should never be blind to, to either. This is my my take on it. So, the, so the the good and bad that's that's a dichotomy. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'm I'm presuming that that nibbana is something beyond dichotomies right. and, and dualism. It's, You're right. Yeah. We, we have to talk, you know, we, you, you, know you, you teach in the world of dualism and dichotomies, and, and, mm. but, there's, but there's something beyond. Well, non-dualism isn't such a big problem in, our, in Theravada Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Non-dualism is much more Mahayana kind of thing. And in fact, it's a, it's a Hindu or an Indian concept. It's called Advaita, non-dualism. It's Advaita. They, there's a whole school called Advaita Vedanta. It's not Buddhist, but they share that with those schools of Buddhism. So it's not really about non-dualism, but you're correct. I mean, absolutely, our form of Buddhism as well describes Nibbana as being beyond good and evil or um, at least frames it in that way. And, and there's, a, there's a curious corollary question as to the fact that Nibbana is uncreated, it's unformed, it's unconditioned. Well, if it's unconditioned, how do you attain it, right? How do you, how do you bring it about? How do you bring about the experience of Nibbana? It's really not that hard to understand because Nibbana is cessation. And of course, cessation has no good or evil in it. Um, but at the same time, there are certain things that bring you closer to cessation. It's like suppose you're you've got all these. Suppose we've got we're we're tied up in a harness and we've got ropes stretching out to all sorts of hooks on the walls, and we're being suspended over a pit. Well, how do you how do you reach the ground by cutting all the ropes? Now the ropes, the, the ropes don't have anything to do with the ground, and the, you're, you're not the cutting the ropes doesn't actually create the ground. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with that. But um, the act of cutting the ropes, and this is like getting letting go of your attachments, um, you know, gets you closer to that point where you're going to fall, and where you're going to be free. I mean, the other you can look at it another way. If you're a bird tied down by ropes. If you cut, the more ropes you cut, the closer you are to being free. And when you finally cut that last one, you can fly. Um, so goodness doesn't create nibbana, but it creates the conditions, or it does away with the conditions by which um, we are mm. kept out of nibbana, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. so we've got all these conditions that are keeping us from nibbana keeping us from cessation, because we're constantly creating more and more, so there's more rise. It's quite simple. It's not like it's really hard to understand why Nibbana is special, why it's, why it's an exception. It's the only possible exception. 
because it's 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 cessation. Heavy. <laughs> what do we have new Guadalupe? Oh hi. Hi. Um, I don't think we've met face to face yet. <laughs> no. Um, <coughs> I I want to ask you about uh, how to overcome greedy greediness from from other people. I mean, um, the Smith. I came to USA uh, to do my my PhD, and I entered into a very greedy environment. But I found difficult to stand all these people, and I think I have developed a kind of aversion from greedy people. So I just want uh, one. How do you say? Okay. Advice about that. About greedy people. Yeah, uh, about how to deal with them. Well, mindfulness. Try to stay away from them for sure, but uh, when you can't, I mean, consider that no one can get in here. No one can get inside. They can only get to here and here and here and here and here and here. And they can only get get to the sense doors. They can't get inside. So if someone says something to you, that's just speak hearing. Someone does something to you, it's just an idea. It's just thinking. And if you see someone, it's just seeing. You see something to do, it's still just seeing. Sometimes it's really difficult for me because I have to follow the rules. Mm. For example, um, this idea that all your work uh, uh, is uh, belongs to them and mm. not to you or to other people who is in the world is kind of crazy for me. I I don't understand. Why should I work just for their purpose and not for all for the benefit of the others? You know what I mean? Kind of. I mean, I get a lot of these questions about what should I do in my life, and there's no answer. You know, life is messed up. Yeah, some some people, if you're born into a pig farmer family, you you're in big trouble because you're going to get involved with killing pigs. That's really bad. I mean, there are people who are able to escape it, but uh, I mean, that's just an extreme example. But in life, we're going to be compromised in society. Why? Because we're surrounded by people who have questionable morals. Yeah. To say the least, most people don't think twice to lie or cheat or kill or maybe even steal. And not most people, but you know, there's aspects of all of these. <laughs> in the world, so uh, I don't have an answer for you. And the, the, really, the answer is there isn't one. To be perfectly honest, that um, you know, you've you've got to slowly make your way out is the only way. You know, there's a story of this bird that was born. This woman who, everybody else was born in heaven. Her husband and her all her her co-wives. This guy had five wives, I think. They were all born in heaven. But she was born as a bird. And when she found out they'd all been born in heaven, she uh, she refrained from eating live fish. She was a crane or something, one of these fish-eating birds. But she refrained. And so she was quite ill, quite sickly, but her whole life as a bird. I mean, it's just a fable whether you believe that that actually happened or not. That kind of uh, allegory is very much the Buddhist way that if you have to do evil, you'll starve to death. You know, willingly starve to death. That's a Buddhist way. You know, you, the only way out is out. And uh, most of us aren't able to get to that, and therein lies the rub. We, we're stuck in samsara. So we do good sometimes, we do evil sometimes. A meditation will be a guide for you, but it can only be a guide if you let it. You have to 
follow what you see. You don't have to start living life. Mm. I mean, coming here and meditating is a good start for sure. But with all these questions about how to how to live your life, advice for life. The reason you have such a vague question, the reason these vague questions come out is because there's no precise answer. The questions are general advice and the reason they like that is because there is no specific answer. So it's, it speaks to the problem of trying to keep a foot in the world. The world is flawed. And the more intensely you get involved in society, the more compromised you become. Potentially. Well, not all the time, but the more potential there is for comp being compromised. The harder it is to stay uncompromised. Because society is based on based on our desires. Desires to become, desires to create, desires to advance civilization, all these. It's all desire and aversion and so on. Medicine is the aversion from sickness. Anyway, it's ten o'clock. I'm going to say good night. Thank you all for tuning in. Good, good session. Thank you, Bhante.